Malachi 1, 6-14, hear the word of the Lord. A son honors his father, and a servant his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my fear? Says the Lord of hosts to you, O priests who despise my name. But you say, how have we despised your name? By offering polluted food upon my altar. But you say, how have we polluted you? By saying that the Lord's table may be despised. When you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor? Says the Lord of hosts. And now, entreat the favor of God, that he may be gracious to us. With such a gift from your hand, will he show favor to any of you? Says the Lord of hosts. Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the doors, that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, and I will not accept an offering from your hand. For from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations, and in every place incense will be offered to my name, and a pure offering. For my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. But you profane it when you say that the Lord's table is polluted, and its fruit, that is, its food, may be despised. But you say, what a weariness this is. And you snort at it, says the Lord of hosts. You bring what has been taken by violence, or is lame, or sick. And this you bring as your offering. Shall I accept that from your hand, says the Lord? Cursed be the cheat who has a male in his flock and vows it, and yet sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. Let's pray. And now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. We... Unfortunately, all know what it's like to cut corners. We know what it's like to slack off. We know what it's like to to compromise. We know what it's like to twist things to our own advantage. And we all, even the most upright among us, we find ourselves falling into these tendencies. And when these tendencies become habits, it becomes a lifestyle. And some people have developed this lifestyle of deception, a lifestyle of cheating, of cutting corners wherever they go. And this uh, lifestyle of deception is damaging for anyone, but particularly when it's practiced by someone in authority over other people. Now, uh, this text that we have today is talking about some who are in authority, who were in the habit of cutting corners, of cheating their way along. And these were not the political leaders, these were the religious leaders. And we might find that to be even more deplorable when the religious leaders have sunk to cutting corners and twisting things and gaming the system for their own benefit. Now, one of the purposes 
of the exiled. And let's review a little bit of history here. People of God in the Old Testament. We have Abraham, whom God chose out of the nations. He has a son, Isaac. He has a son, Jacob. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And then Jacob, he has 12 sons. And these become the 12 tribes of the nation of Israel. And then Israel has its own land. They move into the land that God gave them after they were slaves in Egypt. And then after being in that land, they began to have kings. And they had Saul, and they had David, and they had Solomon. And then on their fourth king, the kingdom was divided north and south. The ten northern tribes, the two southern tribes. And then they went on for a couple hundred more years or so. And then those ten tribes, the ten northern tribes, were taken away into exile, never to return again. So Israel has become very, very small, only a couple of tribes in the south. And then the Babylonians come, and they exile those two southern tribes for 70 years. And then those tribes come back to the land, just a small piece of those tribes, they come back to the land, the remnant of those tribes. Now, why did God do that to His people? He did that to His people to purify His people to make them holy, to make them what they should be. And so he was, he was disciplining them to make them what they should be, to purge them, to purify. Now they're back in the land. Now they're back in Jerusalem. Now the walls are rebuilt, we think, by this time. The temple has obviously been reconstructed. The priesthood has been reestablished. They have their church, as it were. They can begin worshiping together, and they begin to live their life as a people again. And now we find that the spiritual condition of this people that was supposedly purified is terrible. And the condition of the priests that have been reconstituted to offer sacrifices to God on behalf of the people, their condition, their spiritual condition was terrible as well. And that's why this section is directed to the priests. And actually, I read only half of it. We'll get to the other half next week. All of this section is directed primarily to the priests, the religious leaders, but also to the people. Now, remember... From last week, we saw that all of Malachi is set up like a dispute between God and His people. Malachi speaks for God, and God says to the people, He says something. He makes a declaration. And then the people say, Oh yeah? And they challenge God. And then God responds, and He demonstrates that what He said was true, and then there is a response. So all through Malachi... We have God's declaration, the challenge of the people, the, the uh, explanation of God, the demonstration, and then we have the response. So look for those four movements in all of these disputes. Now, um, God began here with a declaration with which all would agree. And I want you to notice how God identifies himself throughout Malachi. He calls himself the Lord of hosts. The Lord of hosts. Host means multitude. And usually this word is a military word. So we could think the Lord of armies, the Lord of troops. We could translate it like that. And this is a very useful thing for Malachi to do, because here's Malachi confronting the religious leaders of his day. And so he keeps reminding them, these are not my words, folks. These are the words of the Lord of troops. These are the words of the captain of the armies. 
And what he says to them, to begin with, is something with which everybody would be in agreement. Look at verse 6. A son honors his father, and a servant his master. Now, he's, he's stating something that everybody would have said, yes, of course, we know that. And he's not stating it in this way. He's not saying that a son should honor his father. He's saying a son does honor his father. Because at least in those days, that's what sons did. And he wasn't saying that a, ma- a servant should honor his master. He's saying that's what, that's what servants do. They, they honor their master. And then, having established that, with which everyone would agree, then he asks a question. Two questions. And he says, if I am a father, and God identified himself as the father of the, the nation of Israel, if I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my fear, says the Lord of hosts, the Lord of armies, to you, and then he points out to whom he was speaking, to you, O priests who despise my name. There's the declaration of God. You despise my name. And then the priests put their hands on their hips and say, how have we despised you? So they challenge God. And so God responds patiently. And he says to them, by offering, verse 7, by offering polluted food upon my altar. Offering polluted food. Now let's think about, what does a priest do? What's the job description of a priest? By definition, a priest offers sacrifices. That's what a priest does. And there were requirements in the Old Testament about many sacrifices. If you've tried to read the Old Testament you probably have gotten to somewhere in Leviticus, or maybe even in Exodus, but in Leviticus, and you've said, what are all these sacrifices that are being offered? Well, the priests were the ones who had to understand all that, their purposes, and they had to offer them. And they had to understand what could be offered and what couldn't be offered. But the basic requirement for sacrifices is in Deuteronomy chapter 15, verse 21. They had to be without fault. They had to be without blemish. They couldn't be blind or lame or sick or crippled or deformed. They had to be perfect animals to be offered. And these these priests were offering less than that on the altar. And he says that, by offering polluted food upon my altar, but they weren't going to take this lying down. So once again they say, how? How have we polluted you? And now, God is going to detail how they were polluting God by polluting the altar which was in the temple upon which they offered sacrifices. So, he details it. In verse 7, he says, By their actions, they were saying that the altar or the table of the Lord could be treated lightly. Now, they weren't walking around saying, The altar of the Lord can be treated lightly. But they were showing that with their lives. If you look at verse 7, and if you look at verse 12, twice, uh, God points this out. By saying that the Lord's table may be despised. Verse 12, but you profane it when you say that the Lord's table is polluted, and that its fruit, that is, its food, may be despised. That's the first accusation. Second accusation. He says, you offer blind, lame, sick, and either stolen or uh, roadkill animals, uh, maimed animals. And he says that in verses 8 and 14. 
Verse 8, when you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is that not evil? When you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? And if you go down to verse 14, he says, you bring, actually 13, you bring what has been taken by violence. Taken by violence could either be stolen, or it could be that's, that's, that's uh, something that's been harmed. That's the roadkill aspect, uh, an animal that has been, that has been uh, is harmed or killed by another wild animal. And he says, you're taking these animals and you're offering them on the altar. The third thing, they offered animals to God that their governor would not accept. Look at verse 8. And here's an argument which is common in Scripture from the lesser to the greater. And it says, present that, that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor? And so here we know something about the time period, the time period of, of uh, Malachi. Because between 539 uh, thereafter, there were governors in the land, and we know the names of a few of those governors. And so it was during the middle of the, the 500s before Christ. And he says, go ahead, take these, these animals that you're offering to God and offer them to your governor. Will he accept you? Will he accept these and be delighted? And of course the answer was, no, he would not be. And another thing is that they were bored. They were really bored with their service. It says, uh, verse 13, But you say, what a weariness this is, and you snort at it. So these were professional religious workers, and they were bored. They were bored with their service to God. And the final thing is that they were allowing people to break their vows by switching out. And the people were were making vows, and this was allowable in the Old Testament, and they could make vows and they would say, I'm going to vow to God and I'm going to give a, a perfect animal to God, a male without blemish. And what they were doing here is they were making that, that impressive promise to God of giving a big offering to God, and then before they gave the offering, they switched it out. And instead of giving the, the perfect animal, they gave uh, some sort of a, a blemished animal. And the priests were in cahoots with this. So the people were doing it, the people were cheating, and the priests were allowing them, encouraging them to cheat as well. Now we might ask ourselves the question, why would they do this? What are the priests getting out of this? And here's a detail we need to understand. It's this. It's that um, the priests, the way they ate was from some of the sacrifices. So, if they could increase the number of sacrifices, then they could what? They could eat more. Exactly. They would get more income. So let's think about how this might have worked. If the priests say, hey, you don't have to give up the best of your flock, you can give up a blind animal or a crippled animal. Let me ask you this. Does a blind animal taste as good as uh, an animal with sight? Sure. Okay. But with which would the people be more likely to part? A blind animal or a perfect animal? Okay, would the people even be willing to give two blind animals in the place of one perfect animal? So you see how the economy could work here. The priests may have been getting more food this way because the the people were more willing to give up the animals that were in some way defective and they didn't want to keep breeding but they were able to sacrifice those. And so it looks like they were gaming the system for personal gain, which was not the the first or last time that people have used religious institutions and gamed them for personal gain. Now, there's some irony here in verse 9. In verse 9, 
he says, now, here Malachi says, now entreat the favor of God that he may be gracious to us. And that looks like it's ironic, kind of sarcastic. Why? Because if you keep reading, it says, with such a gift from your hand, will he show favor to any of you? So it looks like he's saying, go ahead, go, go, go ahead, try to get God's favor with these, these imperfect sacrifices that you're offering, and just see how that works out for you. Try to get God's favor by offering these things. And we also find out that they were bored. They were bored with their religious service. Now, what had happened here, and this is important for us to think about, because we can get bored as well. We can find our faith to be wearisome, and we need to, to head that off by understanding this dynamic about how religious workers and people that consider themselves believers got bored with their faith. Notice what happened, though. They got bored with their faith after they had taken the shortcuts. So they had, they had clipped off pieces of their faith. They had modified the Jewish faith to their own liking, and then they became bored with their adaptation of it. You see, they weren't bored with the truth. They were bored with their distortion of the truth. You see, they had given up some basic ideas that were taught in the Old Testament. Like what? Like God is holy, sin is really serious, and there needs to be a perfect sacrifice offered in order to atone for sin. And they had, they had really ignored these things. That's why they could, they could offer kind of whatever they wanted and think everything was okay. But see, you see, the kind of religion with which they were bored was not the true faith of the Old Testament. It was their own creation. And that's a warning to us as well. That we need to be careful not to, not to clip off parts. Not to have a, like a Thomas Jefferson sort of Bible. And you can see this. It's sitting by his nightstand. He would read this daily, but he would cut out the pieces that he didn't like to make his own religion out of the remnant of the Bible. But he's not the only one. He was at least blatant enough to to cut the pieces out. Uh, Our tendency is to leave them in there, but just look the other way. But we need to be careful. Because if we make a religion according to our own opinions... That's certainly not a religion that's worth following, even by us. And, and we will become bored with that creation of our own faith. The only way that we can maintain our faith intact and vibrant is to stick to what God has revealed. And there is historical verification of what I'm saying here in the Christian church. Because we find that when the Christian church turns aside from the truths of the Bible and starts preaching whatever might be the the modern opinions of the day, those churches might attract a few more people for a little while, but then those churches begin to decline precipitously. Why? Because the practitioners of this new invented faith get bored with it after a while and say, why bother? I can find the same thing on talk shows on TV. There is nothing distinctive here. So this is a a warning to us. And then it's, it's very severe, very serious what God says here. Verse 10. He says, Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the doors, 
that you may not kindle fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, and I will not accept an offering from your hand. Do you see what he's saying here? He's saying, would somebody please, would somebody please rise up and close the doors of the temple so that worshipers can't go into the temple so that priests can't go in and offer these sacrifices because I will not accept these sacrifices and I will not be pleased with you. He's saying it would be better that there is no worship going on than evil worship of our own invention. That's a a radical statement. So much, so much effort had, had God invested into the temple, that it would be built, and that it would be then rebuilt. And it was rebuilt again, the doors were open again, sacrifices could be offered. There was a way to God once again through the sacrifices, and God says, just shut the doors. Just shut the doors. That would be better, that the doors would be shut, than that you continue to offer these evil sacrifices. Now, this is how... The demonstration plays out. So we have the the declaration, we have the challenge on the part of the people, and then we have this demonstration. And this is a very strong demonstration, isn't it? That the priests were really cheating, that the people really were cheating. And so now we're waiting for the, the response. And what's the response going to be? The response, interestingly, is not a response by the priests or by the people. It's a response by the nations. And this is very surprising here. We would expect the response to be repentance on the part of the people or repentance on the part of the priests, but the the response goes beyond that. It, It passes over them, and it is on the part of the nations. This is very surprising. Verse 11, For from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations, and in every place incense or that which is burned will be offered to my name and a pure offering for my name will be great among the nations. And then the last verse, verse 14, for I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. The priests may not respond. The people may not respond, but the nations will respond. And here we are. Here we are. We are in, in the end of the Old Testament era. And there's a contrast here. And the contrast is between the, the people of God and the priests of the people of God and the nations. And the, the people were dishonoring God, but he says, among the nations, I will be recognized as a great God. And the, the people of God were offering these, these impure sacrifices, but he says, among the nations, there will be pure sacrifices that are offered. So here we have the, the end of the Old Testament. We're, we're getting close to that time when, when the Old Testament is going to, to close. And there will be some centuries without any, any new additions to the Old Testament. And then we have the beginning of the New Testament with Jesus Christ. But here we have the end of the Old Testament. And we have the purified, supposedly purified remnant of God's people back in the land, back offering sacrifices, but they were not able to secure God's favor through their sacrifices. Why? They had a corrupt priesthood offering impure sacrifices. 
But we have to recognize something. And that's something we, we learn about in the New Testament. And that's this. Even, even if they had done everything right, they still didn't have the priesthood they needed, and they still didn't have the sacrifice they needed. Why not? Well, even if the priests were following the rules, the priests themselves were still sinners. And that's why the priests had to offer sacrifices for themselves first, and then for the people. And there's something of a a lack of equality here in the sacrifices. Did the sheep sin? Did did the goats sin? Is that why they had to lose their lives? Did did the oxen sin? Is Is that why they were sacrificed? No. Who sinned? Humans sinned. And and if the, the the price of sin, which we find all through the scripture, is death, then we should we should think about this and say, well now wait a minute. If humans sinned, then who are the ones who should be punished with death? Oxen? Sheep? Cattle? Birds? No. Humans. So only a perfect priest who doesn't have to offer sacrifices for his own sins, and only a perfect human can pay the penalty for sins. And if you want to know how this spells out, or plays out, go to Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 10, the whole book of Hebrews. But that's what it's all about. And look at the, the, the argument here. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 1. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? Since the worshippers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But in these sacrifices there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. And he's saying, that's what was so wearisome and tiresome about the sacrifices of the Old Testament. They had to be kept being offered over and over and over and over and over. And the fact that they had to be offered over and over meant that they weren't really, really taking away sins. But then we find out, who that perfect priest and who that perfect sacrifice are. If you go to Hebrews still, chapter 7, verse 26, For it was indeed fitting or proper that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins, and then for those of the people. Since he did this once for all, when he offered up himself. About whom is the author speaking here? Jesus. Exactly. And that's what we find all through the Old Testament. This this clamor, this crying out, for a a perfect high priest, and for a perfect sacrifice. And then we get to the end of the Old Testament, and we still do not have what we need. 
And the point of that is to point us forward. No, we don't have what we need. Even if the priest did everything right, we still don't have what we need because we need that perfect priest, that spotless priest who can offer himself as the perfect sacrifice, human for humans, the perfect substitute for our sins. Now, you remember that? Do you remember that wish here in Malachi? Oh, that somebody would shut the doors of the temple. Now, they couldn't have imagined it in the day, but somebody finally did. Somebody finally did shut the doors of the temple in 70 A.D. The Roman general came to Jerusalem and took the temple down. Not only shut the doors, but knocked them down, knocked the building down. And it has not been rebuilt, and it does not need to be rebuilt, because there is no longer a need for a priest. There is no longer a need for sacrifices, because the perfect priest has already offered himself as the perfect sacrifice. So, if we trust in Christ, and that's the invitation this morning and always, if we trust in Christ as the perfect priest offering the perfect sacrifice for us, we no longer need to offer sacrifices for our sins, nor could we, because the perfect sacrifice has already been made. And we no longer need to go around to find somebody who will represent us as a priest before God because we already have the perfect high priest who represents us always before God. This is the gospel, by the way. This is the good news. Believe in Jesus because He is the great high priest who offered Himself as a sacrifice for sins and your sins if you believe in Him. And when I present this to people, they say, that's all we got to do? That means we can just go do whatever we want? And I say, well, I'm glad you're getting part of it. Yes, that's all that needs to be done for your sins to be, to be paid for. You don't need to add anything to that. There's nothing that you could possibly add. There's no sacrifice that you could possibly give that would add to that or take away from it. It's perfect. It's complete. And that's why you should trust in Christ and Christ alone. But now, if you ask the question, but how should we live? How should we live? Well, then we should remember what's going on here. Uh, that God is saying to these priests, don't game the system. Don't, don't try to take advantage of your faith for personal gain, but, but rather live out your faith. And it's interesting to note, and this is a whole other series of sermons, by the way, or at least one other sermon, but I'll just mention this. In the New Testament, there are at least five sacrifices that are mentioned that believers in Jesus should offer, but these are not sacrifices for sins. That one has already been offered. But in terms of our lifestyles, how we respond and how we declare God to be the great God among the nations, our lives show that as we offer these sacrifices. And what are they? Romans 12.1 says, start with yourself. Offer yourself, your body, as a living sacrifice to the Lord. And then, tell other people about Jesus, as in Romans 15, 15 and 16. And you tell other people about Jesus, and they believe in Him, and then you get to offer people from the nations to God as a sacrifice to Him. And then, take from your wallet and give your money so that missionaries can take the message to other parts of the world. 
And Paul describes that as a a sacrifice to God in Philippians chapter 4, verse 18. And then lift up your voices in praise to God, as it says in Hebrews 13, 15, as a sacrifice of praise to Him. And then, when you find other brothers and sisters who are in need, and you need help, then help them. Because in Hebrews 13, verse 16, he says, Help one another, because with such sacrifices, God is pleased. I clarify, these are not sacrifices to pay for anything. These are sacrifices of praise and of joy and of love because Christ has already paid for everything. Now let's put Malachi together. What did, what did God say through Malachi last week? What was the message? I love you. I love you. And now what does He say? He says, you need a perfect priest and you need a perfect sacrifice. And now we can put these two things together. Because in the New Testament, He comes to us and He says, I love you, and I love you so much that you remember that perfect priest that you need? And that perfect sacrifice that you need? I love you so much that I myself provide that perfect priest. I myself provide that perfect sacrifice. And not only that, He says, I am that perfect priest, and I am that perfect sacrifice. So, trust in that one priest. Trust in that sacrifice. And then, live your life. Not cutting corners, gaining the system, cheating. But live your life in this sacrifice of praise to declare God's glory among the nations. Let's pray. Our God, we thank You that what we couldn't do, what Your people could never do, what Your priests could never do, Jesus did. That He is that that great High Priest, that He is that perfect sacrifice who gave Himself once for all for us. And we pray, I pray, O God, that all who hear this Gospel message today, here or through whatever means, would believe it and become Yours, believers in Jesus. And I pray that you would enable us who are believers in Jesus in turn out of, out of joy, out of love to offer ourselves what we are and what we have to you in praise and in service that others among the nations might come to you and be part of that great sacrifice of praise to the great God. We pray in Jesus name. Amen.